welcome to Barnyard Language. We are Katie and Arlene, an Iowa sheep farmer and an Ontario dairy farmer with six kids, two husbands, and a whole lot of chaos between us. So kick off your boots, reheat your coffee, and join us for some Barnyard Language, honest talk about running farms and raising families. In case your kids haven't already learned all the swears from being in the barn, it might be a good idea to put on some headphones or turn down the volume. While many of our guests are professionals, they aren't your professionals. If you need personalized advice, consult your people. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. It's Barnyard Language here with Katie and Arlene, as usual. And it's the uh, week before Christmas update. Katie, what's going on in your house? I think the UPS guy just brought the last of the Christmas presents that were not in the house yet. So if anyone needs me, I'll be trying to figure out how to keep my kids out of my office uh, for the next five days or whatever it is, um, because they do still believe in Santa Claus as well. So that's a bit of a an issue for hiding presents. You know, I can't just wrap them and chuck them under the tree because they'll they'll have some questions. Um, so does Santa wrap in your house or not wrap? We have not decided. Oh, you haven't decided. Okay, because different families have di- different traditions. No, we've never even discussed it. Never even discussed it. Santa doesn't wrap presents in our house. So yeah, those ones have to stay hidden, but they are just open on Christmas morning where presents from other people are wrapped. So that's how we uh, differentiate. I think we've only ever, we've never done gifts from me and Jim to the kids, only from Santa or from other relatives. But I think this year, maybe Santa will bring one gift each and then we'll bring the rest because especially with um, both financially and cultural differences in our area, it is important to me that it not become a, you know, Santa brings mountains of stuff for some kids. Santa hates the rest of you. You're terrible. You know, it's, it's very important to me that that not be what we're passing on to our children. Um, so I think maybe Santa will, maybe Santa uses different wrapping paper, different ribbons or something. Um, Chucking a a bare Amazon box under the tree doesn't feel quite in the spirit of things either. (laughs) Merry Christmas, here's your Amazon box. Um, And I know that Amazon is the root of all evil and everything, but it sure as shit makes it easier to do the Christmas shopping when you're working full-time and have little kids. Yes, and live in places where you can't always get the thing that Santa is going to bring, right? Yeah, yeah. I am very excited. I had, I know I had mentioned that I had um, ordered off Etsy a machine shed for the boy child. Um, I ended up ordering two smaller machine sheds and two bigger machine sheds. And they're, you know, they're flat packed and then you just slot them together. They're made of laser cut wood. And then you can glue them, you know, if you want to hold them together. And I have not opened the box yet, but I can tell you that for the four machine sheds, the shipping weight was 22 pounds, which is, what, 10 kilos for Canadian friends? So They're going to be sturdy. They're going to be heavy built. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's very exciting. And I will say, I asked the boy child, uh, he caught me looking on Amazon for a combine that he's had his eye on for more than a year now. And I said, 
you know, I'm, I'm just double checking. Is this the one you wanted? You know, not that you're getting it, but just, is this, is this the right one? And he looks at me and he goes, thank you for asking. It's just like, you can have whatever you want, you spoiled little monster. Because <laughs> they're so sweet sometimes. Thank you, thank you for clarifying my request. Yeah, yeah. yes, yes. How's, uh, how's your house going? How is the spa? Not jealous at all. Yeah, so um, my daughter is old enough now. There's a Scandinavian-style spa that's about an hour and a half from here that um, we've had our eye on. And I actually got a gift certificate for last year at Christmas from my parents very generously. And I have gone there a few times with my husband, um, but the last time he got an ear infection. And so he had decided that it probably wasn't a good idea to try that again, especially in the winter when you're in and out of um, the saunas and the hot tubs and all of that kind of stuff. Because it's not like a spa where you go for treatments necessarily. You can get a massage, but um, we didn't yesterday. Um, but it is the kind of spa where they have a whole bunch of different kinds of saunas and steam rooms and then relaxation areas and hot tubs and that kind of stuff. So probably not great if you have sensitive ears, um, but it was great for my daughter and I, and we had a lovely day. So it felt like I was kind of ready-ish or ready enough that I didn't feel stressed out to be there yesterday and not having to accomplish anything. So that was nice. Although today is our Christmas with my husband's family, um, because Christmas is for both sides of our family, whatever day, everyone can be there. So for us this year, one of them is going to be on the Wednesday before Christmas, because that's what works for everybody. And for the other side of my family, it's going to be the weekend of New Year's. So Christmas Day is probably going to be pretty quiet, but that's okay, because Christmas is whenever everyone is available. And when we have farmers and people who work holidays on both sides of the family you just make whatever work when you can when it can happen so that's kind of nice that we're not we're not trying to jam everything into a couple of days and that anyone is too concerned about what the day on the calendar means so that's pretty good but yeah feeling like i'm getting close to being ready well it feels a lot more festive and relaxed too if you're not checking your watch every 20 minutes through the whole holiday celebration to be like, we, you know, we have another house to get to. It's time to milk cows. Like, I mean, obviously the, the milking cows is. Yeah, that's a non-negotiable. So yeah, but it feels like things are getting close. The kids still have a few more days of school and then they'll be off for a couple of weeks. So that'll be nice. And um, we are in kind of wrapping in different parts of the house. Um, Santa in our house only brings one thing and whatever's in the stockings. So um, there's a lot of presents between siblings that we have to get wrapped and put labeled and then from us to the kids and from the kids to us and all of that stuff. So it seems like you don't go in anyone's room without checking first because um, anyone could be wrapping or preparing something for somebody else at any moment. And then the only gift giving we do extended family wise is actually for the one that's um, that we're having tonight. So that those gifts are already over at my mother-in-law's house under her tree. So they're they're out of the house and and ready to go. And the rest of the family, we don't do presents anymore because we just focus on spending time together and not schlepping stuff all over the place. And our kids are older, so they can kind of get that too, that it's like not every occasion has to be a gift giving occasion. How, uh, what age did you start with kids giving siblings gifts or giving you and your husband gifts? Pretty early on, I would say kind of from whatever age they could 
go shopping with us or pick something out online, we've always kind of at least asked the question or had them be somewhat involved in what they thought someone else would like. So I would say like two, three. Oh, shit. <laughs> but I'm not saying that's what you have to do. I'm just saying that's what we've done. <laughs> yeah. it's. I mean, it's whatever works for your family. I think probably a lot of it for us is that our kids were that age during the pandemic. And generally when I do online shopping, it's during my work day. You know, I'll take a little break from work and whiz over to Amazon or whatever and order a couple things. So they're just usually not around. Plus. Yeah. Well, and there's nothing stopping you from now being saying to one of them like, hey, I know that this is something that your sister would really like. Do you want this to be from you? Oh, no, that's a good idea, too. And even if they are involved in picking out what wrapping paper they want to put on it or which gift bag to toss it in or putting their name on the label, I mean, the money part really doesn't make that much of a difference. It's more about like, this is the thing that you're giving to them. And even if you only tell them the day before, because like the keeping the secret is hard too, right? But even if you say like the day before, okay, this is what you're giving your sister and she's going to be excited about it. And you get to decide what this package looks like or whatever, and then hope that they can hold it in. And maybe they can't, and that's not a big deal either. Um, but yeah, make that kind of part of the process because actually going to the store and participating in the buying, that. Is, can be part of it, but sometimes that just is more stressful because then they're just looking at the things that they want or or they don't know what their sibling might like. But you can always have that those discussions about what what they think their sibling would like. I guess to the we did have both kids pick out things for their their best little friends. Um, the boy child doesn't know what he got his best friend yet because he's getting a machine shed the same as the one we got for the boy child. Um, but our daughter did um, receive a gift for her birthday that she wanted to get for her best friend for Christmas. So we got that. And maybe I will have them help me wrap the gifts for daddy and for the grandparents, you know, so they can help decide what things look like and you know, do that. And if that's too much stress, you don't have to do that either. I'm, uh, I'm becoming a big fan of just not doing shit I don't want to do. It's... It's really quite liberating. Yeah. We have a lot of Christmas gift bags. It's really easy to toss a bunch of presents into bags and stick a label on them. So we don't, although my 13-year-old uh, loves to wrap presents. So he did all the presents for the uh, extended family gathering that we have tonight because he really wants to do it. So I cleared off the table and handed him all the stuff. And I did a little prompting when we, there were some tricky sizes or, or weird shapes of things. But uh yeah, that was pretty fun to hand over those responsibilities. Yeah, seriously. I mean, if they want to do it, you better let them. Especially when he wanted to do it. Yeah. All right. I have some rolls to throw in the oven, so I better go and do that. But um, <laughs> Merry Christmas, everybody. This is actually going to be our uh, our episode that comes out before Christmas. And so if this is a holiday that you celebrate, we hope you have a great one. And if not, hope you have a good couple of days off because we know that in uh in the countries where our podcast goes to, just about everybody gets uh, Christmas off if you have an off-farm job. Yeah. And if you don't have an off-farm job, you know you don't get a day off anytime. So. And if you do have an off-farm job and uh, you do have to work, because I know I worked a lot of holidays for a lot of years working in restaurants, I hope you have a good day with decent customers and decent employers. Or no customers and still decent employers. You know, whatever.
Yeah, that's right. All right. Today, we are excited to be talking to Peggy Coffeen, who's joining us from Wisconsin. So we start each of our interviews the same way. And Peggy, I think you know this, but we're going to ask our usual, what are you growing? So what's growing at your place? Yeah. So, all right. Well, I grow a couple different things. So we have this little farm just outside of Green Bay, Wisconsin, a little hobby farm. And we tend to grow a few head of cattle. So that goes a little, that flexes a little bit depending on our kids' ages and the show season. So with, right now we have zero cattle here, but we'll be getting more in the springtime as our little guys are getting ready to start showing. And then we also grow a crop called hemp and it's a specialty crop that I have a business, a direct to consumer marketing business based around that. But then in addition to that, what I really like to look at the way that I serve the dairy industry, which is where my career has been for a very long time is I, I grow people. I grow people in the dairy industry and do that through my traditional work was as a journalist. And I spent a long time with a publication called Progressive Dairy as an editor there and then went on my own to continue to grow people in the dairy industry and have the Up Level Dairy podcast. But what I've noticed is throughout everything that I get involved in is it all comes back to that central theme of growing people. And another way that I do that in my spare time is by pouring a lot into our junior Holstein club here locally and coaching Dairy Quiz Bowl and just helping that next generation find their footing and their path in the dairy industry too. Yes, you're growing a lot of different things. So back to, I'll, I will say kids first, then, then cows. So how old are the kids that are being grown on the farm? All right. So we have four kiddos and they are, there's like two sets. So we have two little boys that are six and eight, almost nine. And then we have two big kids that I call them. So when I met my husband, they would have been five and seven. And so I've been with them for a very long time because now they are 21 and 24 years old. Yeah. So all boys in your two sets. One girl. Our oldest is a girl. One girl. Okay. Yep. Yep. Oldest is a girl, but lots of boys. So... <laughs> and then you were talking about showing. What kind of showing are we doing? Are we talking beef, dairy? I'm guessing dairy. Yeah, we we do some dairy. Yeah, dairy and technically so a little bit of dairy beef also. So I grew up on a dairy. My husband grew up on a dairy. His family was super into showing. My family was, I tried to be, but was not. <laughs> I didn't know. But as we got together and as our oldest kids got into that age where they could start joining 4-H, that became a really big thing that bonded our family. And so it was cool because my husband had a cow from his family farm, which had sold out. And then we had a cow that I brought up from my family farm and everything that our kids show go back to those two cows. Wow, that's really cool. And both of those cows go back to both of our heritage and our family. And, and so... So, so we raise those animals and do the, the show heifer thing. And so our big kids are now like at 21 and 24, they're out of the junior show. So we're just gearing up as the oldest of the little boys is 4-H age. And so we'll be getting into the swing of things with that very soon here. So that will become very real. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's what we do for, for showing. So we like to play around, you know, at some of the local and state shows and Usually most years do something at World Dairy Expo. So that's our fun thing that we do as a family that's really brought all of us together over the years, too. Very cool. So, Peggy, you mentioned you grew up on a dairy. What's your ag background like? 
Yeah. So I grew up on a little farm in southern Wisconsin. So if you know where Madison is, World Dairy Expo, about a half hour south of there. And so we milked 50 cows in a little red tie stall barn. It's about as Wisconsin as you get, right? The little red barn and uh, white fences. And and it was a family farm, right? So I grew up doing all the things and especially milking. I would say I grew up milking cows and driving tractors very badly. But that's the beauty of growing up on a small farm is you do learn how to you learn how to do what you got to do, right? Like you learn how to do so many things and you may not be the master of all of them, but I think it like breeds in any of us and our kids too this like figure figure everything's figure outable attitude. And so, yeah, so that's how I grew up and then my background just really spun off of that. I did all the all the stuff that a lot of other people got involved in the 4H and Junior Holsteins and FFA and all that. But Dairy Quizbolt was my jam. So that's why I still pour a lot back into coaching that program where I'm at now. And I went on to school for egg journalism and really just followed the career of communications in the dairy industry. And for a long time, really thought my greatest purpose and value in doing that was helping people to do things better. Like I'd write about new barns and I'd write about protocols and all that stuff. And that was great for a long time. But I got to the point where I'm like, ah this isn't, this is great and this is helpful and this is relevant, but this isn't truly how I want to continue to make a difference in the dairy industry. And that's where I come back to that whole idea of growing people and, and looking at the content that I can produce to grow them in a way that's almost more personally in the personal development side and mindset side, and just bringing in conversations that help them look at their themselves differently and the world a little bit differently too. I think that's really interesting because it doesn't matter what how great your equipment is if your head's not is not in the place you're not taking care of yourself you're not taking care of your family you're not taking care of what needs to be taken care of before you go out to the barn it's not going to matter how nice your setup is and it's I've known some people with some real basic even sliding towards crappy setups who do amazing things because they're emotionally and mentally in the right place to do it. And I've known some folks who have the best of everything and are miserable. And they're miserable to be around, which is has got to be hellish for their families, too, to deal with that sort of bullshit, I guess. Yeah, well, and I think it comes back. I'm like jumping around to one of the questions that you've sent over to me that comes from some of my own podcast episodes is like, it comes back to defining what success is, right? And what truly in in your heart that looks like. And I think that sometimes we have an idea of how it's supposed to look on the outside. And to your point, maybe it's the fancy equipment, maybe it's the white picket fence and whatever sense you want to look at that. Um, But what is that? is that truly the grandiose picture of success? And, but like I would say even too, in, in my own journey, and we can get into like the, the farming side of the business and then my other business, I think one of the, the greatest lessons that I've learned along the way, and I say learn because of course, I don't learn anything easy, the easy way. I don't learn anything without having a really bad experience or 16. And then it's the, the question of what does success look like? And what I, how I've really come to define success, and it's a little bit different every day, but some days it's a question I actually journal every morning, every single morning in my planner, what does success look like today? And it's been moving away from the tasks on my to-do list to what are the big things, and when I say big things, that I want to make sure my family gets out of today. 
And it might even be as simple some days as just writing down on my picture of what success looks like that when the kids get off the bus, that I step out of my office away from my desk and go sit down with them, have a snack with them and talk to them. And like, it may sound so simple, but those are sometimes the moments that we blow over, right? Like when we get busy and then all of a sudden, like what is success if I poured more work into my business, both either the businesses or the, or the work that we have in the little farm, is that success or success that five minutes that I sit down and intentionally talk to my kids? And so I think that's part of it too, right? And I don't know if that resonates with you, but that bigger picture of what is success in your mind and the world has a version of success, but it doesn't have to be ours. And sometimes our version changes as our lives change and our stages and lives change. Yeah, for sure. And I think far- farmers are so often so practical, right? Where it's easy to decide this is the next thing to do. And then you make a decision based on practicality and logic and and if you've got the finances or what's what's going to look good too sometimes, but also what's going to help me logically and like, what can I see if I buy it? But the, those soft skills of like really learning how to work well with your family or your employees or the people around you, or this, I know some of the people that you talk to on your podcast, consultants and succession planners and those type of people, it's sometimes that's a harder sell. And yet, like you said, the real success only comes when you can have both the hard skills and the soft skills and be able to balance those together. Because success without without those connections with your family and being able to retain employees or have fun while you're at work doesn't really mean a whole lot. Because, yeah, what is it if you've got financial success or maybe not? Maybe the financial success can't come because you don't have those other skills to really be able to work well. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And okay. So here again, this is where you're sending me on a tangent. So just tell me to shut up if you don't want to go there. But, but I think like what you're alluding to, Arlene, reminds me a lot of something that I feel like, like I've bonded with you about. Maybe you haven't bonded with me, but I've bonded with you about the book burnout. Right. And there's like, there really is this, this thing about, and I don't want to get too woo woo, but like masculine energy and feminine energy. And like, I think in our farming community, the masculine side is so strong that as females, we take it on. And and sometimes we have to just like, look at, okay, do I need to balance that out a little bit? And when I say masculine versus feminine, like it goes back to your point of like the hard versus soft skills and how like, I think our community and agriculture, we drive and we thrive on those like that masculine energy and those really hard skills. And like you were talking about, Kate, like that action orientation. And it is a skill and it is a thing that has to be, in my for me at least, developed and nurtured to be able to like swing over to the other side and operate from like that part of my brain. And like there's some days when like one part dominates the other. But what I found is I have to like, I have to intentionally look at both sides and say, okay, where am I at? And am I being too, am I muscling too hard? Or am I in too, am I a zone of almost being too soft? And like, and there's a balance. And it's hard when you're a business owner to strike that balance. And it's hard in family. Well, and I love too this focus on determining what success looks like day by day instead of, I feel like we're so trained to have a five-year plan, which is good. It's good to have a a distant roadmap, but there are days where success looks like nobody has moved out of the house by the end of the day. We're not divorced. No, <laughs> maybe we're not all still speaking to each other, but we've actually stayed. <laughs> like we have not 
cattle working days, for instance, tend to be a little. <laughs> and I know when, I want to say it was after our daughter was born, my husband and I went to a, a farm family retreat where we talked about what our priorities were outside of the actual farm business and realizing that keeping our family together is the highest priority for us. And then keeping the farm as a farm and then keeping our family on the farm and really listing out how those priorities work and realizing that us running the farm was not the highest priority for our family. And really getting on the same page about that, because it can be so easy to get caught up in that. Did we make money? Did we? How much money did we lose? Whose fault is this? What's the next project? And not, do we hate each other? Because there are so many farm families where even if the business is a success, the family is such a shit show that you have plenty of money, but you all hate each other. So... Right. And what's that worth? And what's it worth? Right. And if that's what your family sees as success, then fine. But if that's not what is success, then you need to work on not going down that path. Yeah. Well, good for you guys for getting on the same page and for taking the time to actually sit down and prioritize having the conversation. And then like, how much clarity did that give you, right? In, in your decision making to just for you guys to both know, like, these are our priorities, one, mm -hmm. two, three. Yeah, it's really been incredible. So, Pe Peggy, you mentioned burnout, and we obviously you are a fan of Emily Nagoski, like we are. So, but you also mentioned that was something that you were willing to talk to us about, and that's something that you have personally have experienced. So, how do you, I guess this seems like an easy question, but I don't think it is for a lot of people. How do you actually know if you're burnt out? And then what are some things that helped you when you were in that place? Because I think some of us feel like we're burned out all the time. It becomes one of those phrases that it's like, oh, I'm so burned out. Oh, I'm feeling depressed when you're not actually depressed. You're just like maybe feeling sad or whatever. But like, what does what does being burnt out actually feel like and, and what can help? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, all right. So this topic of burnout. So let me just like regress a little bit to tell you a story tell the to, to share this with you in the form of a story sure <laughs> so so let's like go back four or five years and at that point here I am like working full-time for a magazine right like a magazine editor and hosting that podcast and all that sort of fun jazz we've got our kiddos and the two little boys were pretty little so if they're six and eight now they were like two and four then and, and then I get this bright idea that I'm going to, with zero business background, start a business out of the crop that we grow in our backyard, right? And, and it actually was, it was everything that it, what I found was that it was this crazy thing that just spoke to my heart so strongly. And like, I just really felt like it was God putting it on my heart to take something that we were growing and to create a, a business and a message around it that could truly impact people on, in a powerful and personal and meaningful way. And, and so, so I preface this because I had so much passion and purpose in creating this business that took something we grew on our farm and helped other people to find. I always go back to when you ask, what are you growing? With the hemp crop, it was peace, rest, and relief, right? It, because those are the things that I wanted people to be able to experience from our products and what they're known for, right? And so, so here I am like creating this 
brand and this business and, and just really enjoying it. And it's bringing me alive in so many ways. But what happened was, so let's go back to the whole thing here. Like, so we've got a crop in our backyard. We're growing it. We're harvesting it. I'm creating a business. I'm building a website. I'm learning how to do email marketing. Like I'm doing everything, right? And then I get these other bright ideas because when my creative mind starts going, it just goes a little bit crazy. So I'm like, oh my gosh, so now I've got this. So how? So let me figure out how I can take this, take this stuff and make it into more good things. Like, okay, so I'm going to learn how to make bath bombs. I'm going to learn how to make lip balms. I'm going to learn how to make body care products, right? So let's put this all in perspective. So here I am working a full-time job, raising kids, and then like staying up until midnight, hand-making bath bombs. Like this became a very unhealthy balance. And so how did I know I was hitting burnout? Like, I don't know that we always recognize we're in it because what happens is I think especially in some of our, even in some of my own, I'll call my, my, my egg clicks, my farm girl clicks. Like, it's almost like we have accepted burnout as normal. Yeah. So you don't even realize you're in it because it just seems like, well, everybody else is like half crazy and like not sleeping. So that's just normal, right? This is what we do, right? Yeah. This this is the lifestyle. Yeah. This is the dream. Right. This is the lifestyle. Um, But what happened, like the big wake up calls that I would get is I know that when my body is trying to tell me something, I get sick. And so it got to the point where I had, I went in three times in two months for strep throat. And strep throat is how my body tells me that you need to change and you're being stupid and you need to wake up. Yeah. And it takes, I would say like, God always has to tell me anything three times for me to get it because I don't figure it out very fast. So, so here I was, I was in, in for my third round of antibiotics for strep throat in two months. And that was like the signal of like, oh, maybe if this should change, right? Maybe I do require sleep. I do require, well, right. It's just the sleep. It's sleep and it's stress. So the irony is here I had created this business to help everybody else sleep and be less stressed and (laughs) relieve aches and pains. But I was the one not sleeping, getting so burnt out and stressed out that I was getting sick. But it was all because I just felt so strongly about serving other people. And the only way at that time the only way I could conceptualize doing that was if I did it all myself. And, and that was a really big lesson in when we get into how that evolved in some other ways too, is like taking everything on ourselves. And I can look back now at that experience and I can see how it was reflective of so many other things and so many other ways that I've handled things where taking more on yourself, right? And you're taking it on because either A, you're afraid to ask for help. B, you don't trust someone else to do it. Or C, I think in some cases too, I was maybe almost like, I just, I, I wanted to know that I, I needed the personal fulfillment of knowing that I was helping someone else. And as long as I was using my two little hands to grow the crops and to make all this stuff, then I could tie a direct correlation back to being able to help. And so let's revert to the burnout book. So this is really interesting is, do you remember the passage about human giver syndrome? Mm -hmm. Do you remember this? Yeah, that spoke to me for sure. Yeah, it spoke to me so loud as well. And so the irony is like, as I was, as that book came my way, I I had gone through some of these burnout stages where I was getting sick 
And when I read that passage, what I had realized, what I had realized is that I had essentially created a business that supported that. And so, so this was like a, that whole giver syndrome was like something that I could relate to many parts of life. But here I had constructed an entire business around like taking hum- that human giver syndrome definition and like stepping into it. <laughs> you created it. Yeah. I created it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was in reading that passage that I was like, oh, <laughs> That was a wake-up call too. And that whole book just really helped me make sense of my own tendencies and how how I was not a victim of them, but I did have the ability to step back and say, okay, like here's what I'm doing to my body. Here's what I'm doing to my mind as I as I accept that this is how I want to operate from a business standpoint or whatever else. And I have the power to be able to step back and little by little start peeling that onion apart it's easy to look back over a five-year period and be like, oh yeah, I did this and this that really helped. But like all of those points on the timeline come with a lot of, a lot of layers and like times where your like head hits against the ceiling 15 times in between. So it's always easier to look back, but yeah. So I don't know if I answered your question, but, but that's how the burnout thing really came up for me and how I started to recognize it. And then I guess the next part is the how to how what what's what's help, right? Is that where you wanted to go or did you want to dig into anything else first? Sure. Yeah. I, I also want to put a plug in for our episode with Emily Nagoski, if anyone hasn't already listened to it. <laughs> if this is a if you're if you're someone who hasn't listened to all of our episodes or has been in and out, she is the author that we're talking about and we actually got to talk to her. So definitely listen to that episode for some other tips. But yeah, go ahead and talk about some of the things that worked worked for you specifically. If I can jump in, Peggy, I think one of the things that made the biggest change for me was realizing it's so hard to say, I can't do this when you get burned out that I I can't keep doing this. And trying, I've been trying to really focus on turning that into, I don't want to do this. Because if I say, I don't want to do this, then that puts the power back on me to say, I don't want to do this. I don't want to live like this. I don't want to, I don't want to be this person. And I think it's definitely one of those things that as more people give themselves permission to not do it, it gives other people permission to not do it because you're not keeping up when it it can become such a weirdly competitive thing about who can do the most and sleep the least. And I only get two hours of sleep a week. It's how nice for you, though, that you can get two hours a night if that's what you need. And then it becomes that whole like, well, if you're really a decent person, you could get two hours of sleep a week. You'd be fine. You're just too weak, not disciplined. And it's. Oh, my gosh. It's such a thing. It is such a thing. And I think that whole idea of how in some of our some of our little like even friendship groups or whatever in the egg community. And I think like I've seen a growth and a change in my friendship groups as we've gotten older. Like when we would have been in college together and that that was a thing, like it was our culture to burn, to burn out. And so maybe because we all like were a little bit like competitive or like we're part of teams that were doing different things. And we like literally would just burn ourselves out like over and over again. And it seemed normal because all of us were doing it. 
And I think the commonality was that, and I went to college at Madison and was in agriculture and dairy and all that sort of stuff. And I think so many of us had grown up on small farms where we did everything, where we watched our parents overwork. And, and it was, in some ways, it was what helped them to be successful, but it also had the shadow side, right? And, and then I always think back about this too, is like, we look at our, how we saw our moms serve and like, and I'm going to like, just pull out these farm moms like mine and all of the other women that were in my little egg community growing up, they were the most beautiful, selfless women you'd ever meet. But at what cost? Like they're the ones that they were, it was church. It was 4-H. It was all the, all the groups and things like that. They were the ones that made all the, the homemade pies, the homemade pie makers. Yeah. <laughs> they were the ones that, they're the ones that burned the candle at both ends. And they like did all of this while milking cows, feeding calves, raising kids. And so that's what we came from was these incredible women that never said no to anything. And some of the things that they were doing, like were just their own adapt adaptations to survival, or they were things that fit what the lifestyle was at that time. Well, then we've carried, a lot of us carried all of that, those expectations with us as we became moms. And, and I think the big switch is, you know, yeah. And even that word selfless, I know Katie and I have discussed this word just between the two of us before, but that idea of being selfless, mm. we put that up as a virtue. And yet it means you have no self, that you do not, you have no capacity to put yourself first. And we have to put that behind us because we need to not be selfless. We need to actually recognize that we are individuals, we are a self, and that we deserve to have a priority, that we can't always, we know that we can't give everything away and have anything left for ourselves. So we can't be selfless. And, and yet we still treat that word sometimes as a compliment instead of what it really is. Mm, gosh, that is, yeah, that is so insightful. And I think you're spot on with that. And it's a, it's a connotation versus denotation thing is selfless. Do you, when you hear that word, what does it conjure up? And does it conjure up the sense of pride? Because you can say that that's who you are. And do you need that to feed your own pride or ego, mm -hmm. right? Like, or, or what you believe are the expectations and, and then there's the other side of taking care of yourself and like even the term self-care, I, I, I go back and forth with how that term is used and how I feel about it. Because going back to the fact that I've taught myself how to make bath bombs and it's something that I sell and help for other people to relax. When was the last time you had a bath? Don't ask. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was wondering when you, when you said that you were making them. Who's testing them? Because you don't have time. It wasn't me. I can I can tell you one thing. It was not me. I was too busy making them in the middle of the night. <laughs> yeah. Getting strep throat. Yes, exactly. All right. So why don't we go from there into talking a little bit about hemp? Because it's one of those products that I think a lot of people hear about, but don't always understand. How is it grown? What is it used for? There is like sometimes that's like the... I don't know if it's a stereotype or the misconception, the comparison to marijuana, all that kind of stuff. So explain hemp to us. Yeah, I'll give you the quick rundown. And so just a preface that I had no, I had absolutely zero background in hemp or anything that could have been somewhat related to hemp when we started growing it. All I knew was that it was a part of the like 
it was somehow related to marijuana and I didn't want anything to do with it when my husband, like, it was like my husband's crazy idea of something to do on our small farm. And I was like, I don't want anything to do with this. And before you know it, you're like hand planting 850 plants in the backyard. That's how it goes around here. But anyway, so I'll give you the quick 101 on hemp. And then the other term that comes up with it is CBD. So hemp is a plant and and there's like different strains or there's different varieties of these sort of plants where there's the typical like marijuana plant that people talk about that has components that produce a psychoactive effect, totally different strain of a plant. The one that we've grown on our farm is known for producing a different compound and high levels called CBD. And so that compound is is well connected with things like helping people to sleep with inflammation as an anti-inflammatory and also with like a stress relief benefit as well. So it's it has very low percentage of the psychoactive part. So I was liking it to to corn. So if you're driving down the road, most people that aren't farmers, <laughs> they're going to look out in the field and they're going to be like, oh, I see corn, right? But you and I know that corn has these different stacks and strains and varieties and that some of that might be corn for corn silage. Some of that might be for human consumption. Some of that might be for dry corn. And so so this plant is very much the same way where you might look at it and they might look similar, but they're going to have different genetic makeups that are going to help it produce different things. And so it's a cool plant. It's an annual and we've so we grow it outdoors. Some people grow it indoors in greenhouses, but we've always grown outdoors on our field. And we start them from, we, I have a guy that would start them from seed for us. And then we get them at like a little tomato starter plant by the time we get them. And then I put them in the ground after the ground starts to warm up early June here in Wisconsin. And then they grow incredibly crazy. And then they produce this flower. And so the part that you harvest is actually the flower. And the flower of the plant is going to contain all what I call the goodies. And that's where the flowers are harvested, dried, and extracted, like how lavender would be extracted for essential oil. Same thing with this flower is it's extracted for an extract, hemp extract. So all of the terms that people might see floating around in the world of CBD and hemp, like you'll see like hemp extract. And essentially that is no different than lavender extract, right? That then like a lavender oil is going to be like diluted and carrier oils. Same thing with the hemp extract, except typically like, or in a lot of cases, it's made into consumable product that you can ingest through carrier oils. And then there's also so many other things on the market now, but we've taken our crap and we've made it into this extract that is an oil you put under your tongue. And then that helps a lot of people with the sleep and with anti-inflammatory, kind of works from the inside out. And then also I have people that just really like it for the stress relief benefit too. And and what's been really cool is over the years, I've had people that have come to me with just incredible stories of how this stuff has helped them. One of my, actually one of my neighbor ladies that could see our, our field from her backyard, she was, I was doing some teas for a little while. And with the dried hemp flower and working with a local herbalist to do some blends. And she was telling me how like she actually was able to not have to take her prescription sleeping pill that she'd been taking for years because she was able to actually get the same benefit from the tea. And so it's just really cool things like that where it just there's just something natural that can help people in so many ways. And we could grow it right here in our own backyard. Um, And so, uh, you know, what a lot of people didn't know, though, was like, okay, 
a lot of people have always had questions on how is this different from like marijuana? And it comes back to that difference between the psychoactive effect and the non-psychoactive effect. Uh, and then also what's the legality. And so in order to grow it and to be able to do anything with it, um, we have to be federally tested at started state. Now it's a federal level to be under 0.3% THC. And that's that psychoactive component. And so to put that into perspective, like recreational marijuana is like 10 to 30% THC. So we have to be under 0.3. So like we're in this like it's got just that little bit of amount in it, but not enough to like, it's for, I would say it's for health and wellness and not the other stuff. Got it. So, so that's like hemp 101. Yeah. What does actual harvest look like? And are you guys the ones creating the oil or does someone else do that for you? And then you use the, the extract or the oil to make your products. Like how does that, how does that side of things work? So in the first few years, the harvest was insane because we handpicked everything. Okay. And yeah, so you talk about like raising kids on the farm, raising kids in the hemp field, you know, <laughs> like, so the the plants, yeah, they require a lot of hand care mm -hmm. and hand nurturing. And so harvesting those, because all the goodness, the greatest part of the goodness is going to be in the flower to get the best product, the highest quality product. You really just want that flower. So what I had observed was that People that were growing hemp on a larger scale in many cases were harvesting a big portion of the plant. And so a lot of the plant material would go into um, the extraction process where I'm like, well, we have manageable, which really it wasn't <laughs> manageable, that we could harvest it by hand so that we could really maintain the highest level of, of quality by just really having the flower and very little of the other plant material. But what it essentially what it looked like was we turned our garage into a drying unit and had drying racks and dehumidifiers and fans and all that and would go out and handpick these flowers from the plants in the field and bring them in, dry them on these racks and just keep rotating the racks through as they, as they would dry. And then so the destination for all of these dried flowers is a local place that's about 20 miles down the road where I could take them all and then they would run them through an extraction process, they had the equipment to do that. And so it just actually worked out really beautifully that we had somebody that could do it locally that specialized in small batches. So it just was, worked out really great. It ended up being a great partnership that they were able to handle our, our size of crop, whereas a lot of the bigger companies that were popping up at the time would only handle really large volume. And so they could take our small volume so it could be very, it could, it could be our own product that we had the confidence in, in putting into or our own crop that we had the confidence in putting into our products. Right. And it's not just going to get mixed in with everybody else's and then you'd get a portion of it. It was actually all yours that you're getting back in the end too. Yeah. But there was a level. Let me also just say though, there was a level of insanity with the harvest and, and also probably a level of burnout within that too. And as we did that for a few years, I've actually scaled my, my growing back quite a bit that only had a very, very small plot this year because we did have so much biomass from the last few years. And I'm like, you know what? Like simplify life. We don't need to grow as much. And so we had a very small plot. And I was asking my little boys the other day, I'm like, so do you miss when we used to spend all of our evenings after school out in the field and you got to ride with mommy on the four wheeler and we got to pick hemp? And they're like, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, we're good. Yeah. Let's not go back to that. 
So that was was one of my other questions is what do you do with all the biomass if you only need the flower? Like the from what I'm picturing, you've got some pretty big, robust plants. What what ends up happening with the rest of the plant? Unfortunately, we never really found a great outlet for the rest of the plant, which is a shame because it's like a very fibrous plant. And there's there's are some emerging industries for taking that and turning it into clothing and textile and building materials even. But but those markets really aren't mature enough to be able to just have like a place that we could take our our plant material and just be like, here you go or have any value in it. So we actually, unfortunately, have ended up just having to let it dry out and burn and then burn it to just dispose of it, which I is always bugged me a little bit because I'm like, I wish we had a better I wish we had a better way to, to handle this and deal with it. And maybe that will come to be at some point. But that's uh, that had been our, our form of handling at that point, just to get it off the field. Yeah. Peggy, I find it fascinating. I'm, I grew up in central Iowa and made friends with someone whose grandparents farmed hemp commercially pre-World War II and the, the politics of how hemp became illegal and how hemp got so intertwined in the public understanding with marijuana and that it was it was a big business for a long time and then it wasn't and i've got your your website pulled up here and i have to say one of the things i noticed the first time i looked at your site was that it's i think because so many of us do have this connection between thc and cbd in our minds that We've seen a lot of CBD packaging that's very, like, Grateful Dead, very, like, tie-dye, hippie, like, you won't get stoned from this, but you might think you're going to, where your stuff, your whole presentation is so much more spa-like. I know my, my mother-in-law said something about all of her friends are using CBD the other day, and of course my first thought was like, oh god, all these little old ladies are getting stoned. Which, like, reasonably, I know that they're not. And if they are, I don't really care. Like, it's still illegal in Iowa, but whatever. But, and it's in the nicest possible way, your stuff looks like something my mother-in-law would use. Right, right. (laughs) In, like, a not grateful, dead, sketchy, like, weird head shop in a strip mall kind of way. Thank you. Thank you. Mission accomplished. (laughs) That's the idea. Yeah, yes, exactly. I got to tell you the story. Okay, so let me tell you how the whole thing came to be with the CBD business side. And I say business side. I didn't start it out thinking I'm going to start a business. I started out thinking I need to do something. And sometimes like when I know I just need to do something, I just start doing and then I'm like, oh, I guess I guess it's a little business now. But but anyway, so here's the story behind the story is like, so we're growing this crop in our backyard. Plan was to cash crop it. We're going to sell it off. Like it was when the, the program first became legal in Wisconsin to be able to grow. So my husband's idea is like, we're going to cash crop this stuff. And I was like, right, we're going to go to jail. I don't want anything to do with it. And and then so over time, I started to hear some people that were telling me that like, oh, well, actually CBD isn't as it actually can really help people with some things. And so finally, like I was like, you know what? We're growing this in our yard. I do want to understand it better. I'm going to Google CBD near me. And just see where I, if I can find some somewhere. And that was a like the best and the worst idea because I like, okay, I'm like, okay, I do follow my GPS to this little store in town. And I like pull up and I like look at the store and I'm like, first of all, I'm like, 
I hope nobody I know sees me parking here. And I walk inside and, and I kid you not, the gal at the counter was wearing a Batman cape. And I'm like, I looked around and I'm like, <laughs> these are not my people. I'm like, these are not my people. These are not my people. But she was, despite the cape, she was extremely warm, helpful, and very knowledgeable, right? But the cape, like, you just had to lose the cape, right? So I see this and I'm just like, I walked out of the store again fast because I'm like, I hope nobody saw me in there. But I walked out and I said, this is a shame. This is such a shame that something so good that could help people in so many ways. And this is where they have to go to get it. And this, to your point, Katie, like with the tie dye and the everything with the packaging, I'm like, this is a shame that this is how it's positioned, how it's marketed and where you have to go to get it. And so I, I, I came home and I looked out at our field and I was like mowing the lawn and like thinking and praying. And it just came to me of like, we've got something that we're growing right here that could put people's minds at ease of knowing A, where it's coming from, B, how it's grown, C, who's growing it. And I can create a brand that a woman like me would feel proud to pull out of her purse. And, and that is, that's, and I'm glad that, it, that you see the difference when you see the, the website, <laughs> because that's what it, that's what I wanted to create. And that's what I always go back to is like, would a woman feel proud to pull this out of her purse in public? And, and so that's what really drove that branding. And then the word pre itself, which is the brand name, P apostrophe R-I, it's the Hebrew word for fruit and it's rooted in the Bible verse, Galatians 5.22 which is the fruit of the spirit. And that is really the driving force and the driving guiding light behind the brand and how I hope that it helps people in the world to be able to find to find the good things that are meant for them in life when they aren't as stressed and when they actually get some sleep and aren't in chronic pain. Sorry, I was just over here thinking about how your stuff absolutely does not look like you would get stoned, which I guess is good since that's not your intent. One, I think... I'm going to add a question. How do you deal with, I think there is thankfully a changing perception, but a perception nonetheless that CBD is for aging hippies who are transitioning away from pot and are like anti-big pharma, where it seems like, you know, my mother-in-law and a lot of the folks that she knows who are using it and her doctor's recommending it because none of the pharmaceutical options are actually helping people and it's a lot of side effects for not a lot of help. So I'm wondering how you deal with folks who think that maybe it's woo-woo BS that doesn't actually do anything. That's a good that's a good question. What it's come down to for me is I started doing this little business. One of the first things that I did because okay, so I would have launched it in October 4 years ago. And so the first thing that I did was I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to find places that I can just test the waters. So I did a bunch of like little craft and vendor fairs, which of course in like November, there's like all little Christmas craft vendor fairs, things like that. It was like the best and worst experience because like I learned a lot, but I definitely had, had people that had no problem telling me what they thought about what I was doing at these little craft and vendor shows. <laughs> And I was like, dang, I'm like, 
And uh, I, I specifically remember at one, I was, I just happened to be, my table was next to a lady that was like a pure romance rep. And, and we were like the stink eye tables of the whole craft show. Right. We're like, you could just like, you could see people just like. They went from the crocheted items, bypassed your two tables and then on. Oh, on they didn't the just bypass. They like bypassed it with an arc <laughs> and, a, yeah. and a dirty look. Yeah. And I'm like. And you precisely are probably the people that actually need maybe what we both have to offer. <laughs> yeah, both both tables could help. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. So that's the thing that gets lost with the Midwest nice is that A, it's it's pretty situational. And B, when people aren't being nice, it's that much more obvious because like the bar for what counts as rude is pretty low. And a lot of bigger places you have to really get out there to be perceived as being rude where in small town wisconsin like small town iowa it really doesn't take much to no be noticeable did they like put a little under 18 barrier in front of you guys (laughs) it was there was a little curtain oh my gosh they might they might as well might as well have but i like i still remember like some of the looks on people's faces it was just like and i'm just like geez i'm like Gosh, I would never walk by someone's booth anywhere and be like, oh. And I'm like, why do people think that's okay? Like, that's just mean. <laughs> and like I said, I'm like, I'm like, you're probably the ones that either need one or the other things that we have to offer. And maybe it would be a little bit more pleasant. Or you're going to look us up when you get home on the internet, but you don't want to buy it here. Like you were saying about going into the store, right? I know. I know. You don't want to be seen to be at that booth, but your curiosity maybe has been tweaked and yeah, you might go home and order that and hope it arrives in a unmarked package. In a discreet package. But, you know, I think the biggest thing was like, I did all these little vendor shows and I I learned a lot, right? I learned a lot about perception. And it's funny because like I spent, I spent so much of my career in the dairy industry with all of the stuff, being exposed to a lot of the marketing conversations from farmer to consumer, right? And so it was in in an interesting way, I was putting that to its own challenge in my business, except the product that I was marketing had just been deregulated as a narcotic. And so it's interesting how like it, it, I think I can actually almost offer just a, a whole different insight to like my friends in the dairy industry on direct to consumer marketing and product marketing and positioning, because like, like you want to talk about marketing something that has a lot of strikes against it. Like I said, this product had just been deregulated as a federal narcotic. Like, <laughs> like it makes milk seem pretty, pretty easy to talk about. But it, yeah, pretty, pretty neutral. Yeah. Yeah. Basic white milk. Yeah. Not too much controversy in the bigger picture. So on that, on that topic, do you have any tips if someone is trying, just thinking about starting to direct market something that they're growing or raising or 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 they're starting into it but struggling like in terms of how to how to position yourself and how to find find your customers. Yeah, some, this is something I think about a lot, especially like I said because, you know, I'm so ingrained in in dairy and and then have this personal experience on that's a little bit different swipe at it, but I think one of the biggest things that was a a difference maker for me and starting up my business was I intentionally decided to be very specific with who I was targeting with my brand and my product. And and maybe you can see that, Kate, as you're like looking through the the website and stuff. But like 
I, I knew like, and I, okay, so let me back up. When I started this business, I didn't know what I was doing. So what did I do? I went to the library and I literally checked out a book called Digital Marketing for Dummies. And I had a little travel for work. And so I brought that book with me on the airplane and it walked me through how to identify your, they called it your ideal customer avatar. And so I, so it was scripting out who is going to buy your product. And not just like, because, and this is where, this is what I think is a valuable lesson for anyone who has a agriculture business at their direct marketing is like, you may, it's easy to say that your product is for anybody and everybody. Is my CBD for anybody and everybody? It absolutely could be. But I knew that I wanted to speak to women who are like me, women who are hesitant to try something new that seemed a little bit sketchy that women like me who may have never even smoked a cigarette in their life. <laughs> and also women that um, were literally like stressed out, burned out, couldn't sleep. And at an early ages or way too young of ages, experiencing some bad things physically with their health because of all of that compounding. And so I said, okay, this is going to be for stressed out moms that can't sleep. And, and so what what I, how I looked at that was I really drilled down into what are these, what do women like me, like, what would they want? How would they want it packaged? How would they want to receive it? And where do they hang out? And how can I reach them? And, and being really specific in that vision of who my ideal customer was. Now, the caveat is like, still anybody, I have men that buy the products. Like I have people that aren't in that demographic, but that is where I knew that that's where I found by just trusting in that that I could have the most power to be able to truly connect with people and to speak to them. And so so that's like, I think the the takeaway for anyone that has a farm-based business is, is really get clear on who you are selling to and what you are selling to them. And so this is also like where I could see other CBD brands, which many of them don't exist anymore, where I saw them like, maybe what I would say, maybe making a little bit of a wrong turn because they were still trying to market to everybody and they were trying to market CBD. And I said, okay, I'm going to market peace, rest, and relief. I'm not selling CBD. I'm selling a good night's sleep. I'm selling these benefits. And, and I think that's like a kind of a paradigm shift is that like, okay, if you, the, here's, the other, here's the other paradigm shift is commodity versus niche. Right. And like I think I see a lot of small businesses, whether it's farm businesses or go back to the ones you'd see at the little craft fairs and farmers markets that I participated in is they are growing. They have a niche, a niche product that they're trying to market like a commodity. And and that means if they want to if you want to market like a commodity, you have to price like a commodity. And so that's how you erode your margins real fast when you're a small business is because like the beauty and the power and the glory of being a small business is that you can be super niche and you can charge for that because there, if, if you want to, like, but it all comes back. If you don't do the work of really identifying who you want to, who you want your customer to be in the first place and how you want to serve them and how you can help them on how you're strategically positioned or however you're, you know, however that you're positioned to serve them. Like that's, I think where the, that's where I think where the magic and the beauty is. And like, it's interesting because as I was starting this business was really when the direct to consumer beef business started to boom because before, right after that was COVID, right. And like, and I've seen more and more of my friends in dairy say, okay, well, we're going to start direct marketing our beef to 
neighbors and things like that, which is awesome and wonderful. And, and there are some where I'm like looking at their stuff and I'm like, okay, I'm like, you, if you wanted, if you wanted to take this business and do something more with it, like you could maybe market it as an upscale brand, right? Like, and, and to have that vision of like, what is your consumer? What does your customer want from you? And like, that's also where, as I was marketing my product and getting out more with it, I started to really be more conscientious of how I set up my displays so that they had that spa feel like a little, it was like this combination of like farm and spa together. And, and, and that's what I wanted to attract was the customer that was going to see that display be drawn to a little bit of the beauty of it, but also see the, the earthiness and the groundedness in it. And, and so I just became very conscientious about how I set things up, even how, what I was wearing myself to be able to be a match for the customer that I wanted. And I think that's one of the, the big, like the big views that I would share with anyone who has a, a small business of a farm product is like, if you really take the time to invest in those pieces, it'd be really interesting to see how your market would change and how your customer profile would change. And would you actually get more of your ideal customer instead of your headache customer? Because that's a thing too. Yep, definitely. <laughs> and, and your satisfaction level. Would it be more rewarding and more fulfilling if you knew how you were, you were attracting the people you wanted and that it was good for them and good for you? I know... Peggy, we direct marketed beef for a number of years until we had too many kids and too much COVID and it just kind of didn't, I was paying more in childcare than I was making. Yeah. So you were like the opposite where everyone else, yeah, everyone else started after that. But I love to looking at your website, that things are alphabetized, which I personally love because I think the other thing people forget when they direct market is that you're not marketing to an existing customer. You know, I don't, I notice a lot of like personal care items, whatever, have cutesy names or whatever, which cool, be creative. But if I can't figure out what it is and what it's for and what it does, I'm not going to stand there and like read the whole thing and try to figure it out. And if I'm still stressed out, I'm not using your product. I'm still stressed out. I want it to be really easy to buy the damn thing. You're stressed out trying to make a purchase to be less stressed. Yeah, like, fine, have a second website for people who are already calm to, like, <laughs> go enjoy the music and the cute names or whatever. First-time customers, it should say, what are these three problems? Here's a product. And that's essentially where you are with your website. And I love it because I think people do market so much to, like, this is our our aesthetic. I'm like cool but i can't figure out what the hell it is and i am way too tired and stressed out and if my kids are with me i am not going to stand here and try and figure this out and like that is an upside with beef at least is if it says t-bone steak it's pretty obvious what it is but if you're going to price it at that higher price it's the same thing that you have to be able to make a reason with your customer real fast mm. because they'll just walk away. Yeah. Right. Because like, right. Because none of us have time. None of us have time. Right. And so, and so thank you for the compliment on the website. And let me tell you that that credit goes to the gal that I had designed my website. And, and I'm going to just share this as well. So when I started the business, I built my own website from scratch. The scary part is it's like, it's just easy enough that you think you can do it. 
but it got to be so much maintenance and so much time. And, and so I had built my own site. I managed my own site. I did all of my own site updates and for probably two years. And then, and then I was like, okay, going through the burnout phases, right? Going through the burnout phases. One of the things that I've learned to do, and I do this in my, my main business now, which is my up-level dairy business, my podcast business, is I, I had to learn to make lists of this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm not going to do. And website updates and rebuilding a, a more functional website had to go in the this is what I'm not going to do anymore category. And that was, it was a big, it felt like a really big investment when I made it, but it also is an investment that's like paid it, that paid itself off fairly fast. Um, And it relieved so much stress for me that I could open up and use to do the things that allowed me to be in my zone of being creative of like, well, doing my other, my other work and jobs and everything else too. It was a thing that no longer kept me up until midnight when I wasn't making hand making bath bombs was outsourcing out starting to learn how to outsource a few things. So burn burnout tip. I know I have a, a post-it on the bottom of my monitor that says I can do anything, but I can't do everything. And one of the the changes that we recently made on the podcast was that Arlene found us an editor because I have been doing it for the last two and a half seasons and I had not realized how over it I had gotten. And just realizing that turning over the shit you don't like doing or that you're not good at or that takes too much time or whatever does give you so much more leeway to do the stuff you want to be doing and the reason you started doing it. And and then we can support somebody else's business where they can do the stuff we don't want to do. Oh my gosh. And you, and like, I, I'll speak to that from the, well, with the CBD business. So at one point in time, like I said, I was doing the webs, doing my own website and web updates, managing all my social media. I was like cooking lip balms and body butters and salve in my kitchen. I look back, I'm like, what was I thinking? Right. What's for supper? Lip balm and takeout. Well, yeah, there's a little <laughs> bit of beeswax and your mac and cheese, guys. You'll be fine, right? <laughs> yeah. Yum. And but what but and, and I was and I was doing all my own packaging and shipping. And so I was like literally doing everything while working full time and raising little kids and not sleeping for a million reasons. And and so one by one, I started to outsource. And when I say outsource, that means like every time I outsource something was because I hit a burnout wall. Right. Like it sounds glorious when like just delegate, just outsource, just find the person and give them the opportunity. Well, that's a really pretty way of saying. But it was literally because you had. yeah, Because I had no choice. Right. And and maintain my Mm -hmm. sanity. I had no choice. But what I found was that I ended up finding a local gal that could that specialized in natural body care. And so I gave her my recipes and I'm able to support her small business. And by having her do those things for me and I don't have to touch them. Like she does a beautiful job and way better than I could do. And I ended up outsourcing my packaging and shipping. And I have most of my inventory offsite now, which means it's not in my office and living in my face and my space. And so that was a beautiful blessing too, was to eventually outsource all the packaging and shipping. And then the other thing was the social media and email marketing. Like I had all the systems set up so that somebody else, I act like I did this on purpose. It's just how it worked, right? Like I had the system set up that eventually I was able to just look into my network and bring people in. 
And so I had a gal that I was, was actually coaching for Dairy Quiz Bowl and she was only in high school, but she just really was sharp and had a marketing instinct. And so she manages all of my social media and does all of my product photography. And she's amazing. And she started doing that when she was like 17. And she's just been a huge blessing. And then the other thing that I used to always do with my products is I would handwrite a prayer card that would go out with every single order. And I had a really hard time giving that up because that to me was my way of personally connecting with every customer. But here again, what I realized is that if I was not in a place and space of peace and contentment and joy myself, how could I sincerely write those and give them to other people? And so I started again, I looked out and I'm like, who do I know? And, and I had some really beautiful faith, faith hearted friends. And I said, Hey, would you be interested in writing some prayer cards? I'm like, I can write the prayers and for you and you can just copy them or you can write your own. And it has been a beautiful blessing in their lives that they have thanked me for. And I'm like, you're helping me out. And they're like, no, this is like, this is so good for my soul. And I'm so grateful that you allowed me and asked me to do it. And like, so it's, it's all of those things that end up making it all come together. It sounds beautiful now, but like I said, there was. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the important piece that we often forget when we're in that place of burnout is that asking someone for help, whether you're paying them or you're asking for a favor or whatever, if they're in a place to say yes, then it is actually a good thing for them that the people who love us or the people who work for us or whatever, they they get something out of this relationship too. It's not one-sided. It's not like we ask for something and then we're a burden to them. It's that that they can give us something back, that they can earn money, whatever comes out of that. It's, a lot of our relationships are transactional and that doesn't have to be a negative thing, right? That right, right. If probably in the past, someone if we, are, if we are close enough to someone to ask them for help, we have probably helped them in the past. So the fact that we trust them enough to ask for help when we need it, that they are often honored. Like if someone asks me for help with something, that's like, wow, thank you. Like, thank you for giving me the opportunity to help you with this. And even if I have to say no, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that, that that wasn't, that the asking was wrong. And it's interesting because like, as you say that, it reminds me, I'll go back to the, go back to the burnout book again, right? And that human giver syndrome and how it, why is it that those of us that have the hardest time asking for help are always the first ones to give it? Right. And so like it's it's an interesting dichotomy, isn't it? And how sometimes like we forget that we bless others by inviting them to be helpful to us, because we if we get a rise out of helping other people, sometimes we forget that we're not the only ones and that our ask is a blessing and not a burden on them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we're going to transition into the kids stuff because we are a parenting podcast and Sometimes I feel like we end up uh, forgetting this part of things. But Katie and I often ask what the early days of parenthood were like to people, because that seems to be that that transition point of becoming a parent, whether that's through people arriving in your house through different means, whether it's adoption or or birth or however kids arrive in your house, that transition to parenthood can be a really tough one and obviously has lots of blessings too. But so what were your early days and months of, of parenthood like? Oh, goodness. Well, so it, parenthood came in like two different phases for me, right? So like when I had met my husband, I was, this is crazy to think back. I was 22 years old and he had a five-year-old and a seven-year-old and he was, I think, maybe 30 at the time. But I look now and I'm like, 
how many 22 year olds do I know that like would be either? Yeah, would be would be happily walking into. Uh, yeah, <laughs> right, right. And so I apparently apparently I was just that crazy and not that smart. And I don't know. But but I really love my husband. And I'm like mature beyond your years. We'll go with that. Mature beyond my years. Yeah. And I was like, well, if I love you, I love your kids. Right. And so so I kind of like got my entrance into motherhood and in and, and an untraditional way. So like like I said, I was I think 22 when I met him. And then we got married when I was like 26. So I had these children that were already in my life. And so that was it it was really it was really honestly like a really like beautiful, beautiful way to become introduced of to like what it was like, what it meant to be to be a mom. And they have a mom who is wonderful and who they have a great relationship with. So like my role was different, but they spent half the time with her and half the time with us. And so like my I started to say, okay, well, my my place and my purpose in their life is that when they are at our house, that this always feels like home, that they're always taken care of, that we have family meals together. Like I wanted to just really keep our home as a stable and safe place for them, right? Like where they always felt like this was home no matter what. And even like even in those early years, like I was very careful to like, I'm like, I don't want to change things in their life. I don't want to change things in their home that they're used to because I'm sensitive to the fact that like like this is still hard for them, right? Or it was at for for some of those years, whether they said whether they would say it or not, like it still is going to be hard and transitioning with like going through parents that have a divorce and they're great kids and and we really just had wonderful memories of being able to spend a lot of time with just them. And then and then my other introduction into motherhood came when I had my own two little boys. And the first one, the first one, I didn't realize how easy he was until I had my second one. (laughs) They do that to you. That's how it goes, right? (laughs) Sometimes, yeah. Mine was, my first was really hard, but yeah, yeah, every baby's going to be different. Yeah, the first was easy. The second one was, was, was definitely a lot harder. I didn't really realize how easy the first one was. But I think like the biggest, there's like definitely right all the joys of becoming a mom to my own little boys and 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 just really owning the motherhood role fully and so it was interesting because I had the experience of raising other kids that I loved dearly but they had a mom right like they had a mom and I always wanted them to have a really good relationship with their mom and so sometimes like even when they were little I would like feel I miss that. But then when I have my own, I'm like, okay, so this is what it's like. I I get this on a whole new level of what it's like to have that bond. And the bond is like something that you just, it it can't be broken. But yeah, what were the early years and and days like? Well, they definitely were a lot harder than I thought. And I think the biggest takeaway when I look back is like, it it was a huge lesson in control. Because even with my first one, like, even though, like I said, I didn't realize how easy he was, I still maintained a certain level of control in the world, in my environment, in my own life, of my own body. <laughs> and then the second one comes along and challenges every every barrier, every boundary, every every element of control that I thought I had. And like from the moment he like hit the ground, like <laughs> it was just that way. But but it it, it has been humbling and faith building. I think to look at these experiences as a parent and say, okay, like, I think I learn more from my kids than maybe what they learn from me. And, and that whole sense of control has been something that's been a big lesson 
of like, of as much as you think you are in control and as much as you can strive for it and try to create environments around it, like we're not, we're really not. <laughs> yeah. I think sometimes an easy baby too can make you think like, oh, well, it's because I'm doing this that they're a good sleeper or it's because I'm doing that that they're a good eater. And then you get the other one who is like, oh, no, <laughs> you can do the exact same things and I don't plan on sleeping or I'm not going to eat that or whatever, right? Like you can convince yourself that it's it's your parenting that is resulting <laughs> in what's happening. And, and a lot of times it doesn't actually work out that way. Or sometimes it does for a few weeks or a few months. And then <laughs> then a new a new thing happens in your life and that goes out the window. Yeah. Yeah, it's humbling. It's humbling every day. So, Peggy, I'm going to preface this next question with the fact that I am always so impressed by people who take on kids who are not newborns because they have expectations. When you start as a new parent with a new baby, the new baby has no idea what you're supposed to be doing either. So there's no like, wow, adult, you're screwing this up, where especially starting with a kid who's like five or seven or whatever and has stable adults in their life to look to for an example of what stable adults do, I would imagine the the expectation is a little higher from a kid who knows what a mom is supposed to be doing. So what is what has been a parenting win in your life recently? Oh gosh. Yeah. So well I'm gonna I'm gonna swing back to the bigger picture of of where our life is at now. So like I said, we've got the, the little boys are six and eight and the big kids are in college. One's in law school. Our oldest, McKenna, she's in law school. I can't take any credit for her being amazing and smart. She just, so I, I can't count that as my win. I think that, I think really though, the win is that our four children truly love each other so, so much. And like, it, it is just, it's so heartwarming like with the big kids being off to college, we don't see them as often. But when they come home, like it's like literally like this love fest where like the, the big kids wouldn't have to be the way that they are with the little kids because the little kids are intense and they're very energetic and they're they're boys. So they're high energy and they're like climbing, jumping on top of their brother and, and his girlfriend. So I guess we feels like we have five kids now. But uh, but I think the biggest win are these moments when everybody is home and it's Thanksgiving this week. So we'll have everybody home here pretty soon. And just the fact that like we can all, we can all just be together. And like, sometimes I just like have these moments when I just like step back and watch and I'm like, we are just so blessed that the big kids are the way that they are with the little kids. Cause they wouldn't have to be, they really wouldn't have to be. But they're just truly good humans and and now adults. And and just to see the ways that they interact and take care of each other and just show their love for each other, which is sometimes through wrestling matches in the living room. <laughs> Everyone has a different love language, right? <laughs> Everyone has a different love language. Yeah. But but that's that's a big win is just being able to see how how truly they they really do love each other. And and I'll like preface that with the fact that our youngest was born two days before our oldest left for college. And, and I was, she was four hours away. So I was kind of like, I think she was, she was worried and concerned because she was very close with her little brother that would have been born when she was in high school. And, and, and I think she was worried about how she would bond with the baby. And so now the baby's six and, but, but it's incredible how, even though they didn't grow up 
in the same house or didn't have that time in the same house, they're still so closely bonded. And like I said, like there's so much love when they all get together and like, we're just so, we just got really lucky. (laughs) Yeah. Well, sometimes we create our own luck too, right? Like you said, you were intentional about making sure that that your home felt like theirs. And so, I mean, that, that has to play a part too, right? Like that they feel like this is this is their home and these are their siblings. And so that, yeah, those relationships happen with, with support, with support from, from the adults in their lives too. So don't give it all away. Well, and it's funny because like the little boys, as they get older, they start to ask more questions and, and I've always, like, I have never, my husband and I have never told the little boys that they're half siblings. Like we don't use that term, like they're brothers and sisters and we are family. Mm -hmm. And so like that's that's always been our language. But uh, it was funny because my six-year-old the other day, you know how kids always ask the best questions when you're riding in the car? And he just all of a sudden he's like, mom, whose belly did sissy come out of? <laughs> and I'm like, well, she didn't come out of my belly. She came out of her mommy's belly. And and our kids actually know their like their brother and sister's mom and and all that too, which is pretty cool. But, but so I'm like trying to explain like how there's like, they're trying to conceptualize in their little brains, these bellies and where the babies come from. And yeah, so it's, it's funny how those conversations come up, but, but the kids are really beautifully bonded together. So. Yeah. So what is your biggest parenting struggle these days? What's, what are you finding challenging? I mean, there's, I'm sure there's always, I've got a list, but (laughs) the one that comes to mind. I've got a list. And I think like if I were to really drill down to something that is on my mind and my husband's mind, and that I think a lot of other parents struggle with too, is there's uh, like, there's so much pressure to make kids grow up so fast. And some of it I see in the form of sports and the intensity at which you can be involved in sports at at really young ages. And so like our eight-year-old who's in third grade, he's not like super into sports, which has almost been a blessing because we haven't had to make some of those decisions. And our little guy that's six, like you can just tell that he's like, he like is going to be wanting to be on every team, every tournament team for every sport. Right. And like, I know that there's going to be some decision making that's going to come along with that. And, and I think the frustration that I have or challenge as, as we look ahead is how heavy do we want to play in that space? And at what point is it, at what point is it enabling the children to live their best life and and their skills and their talents? And at what point is it detrimental to our family time? And, and at what point do we push them so hard at a young age that they burn out? by the time they get to high school. And, and so like there, maybe I'm worrying about things too far ahead, but, but that's one of, I think the biggest challenges that we're starting to, we're just starting to bump up on is the level of intensity. And, and so I say this with sports, but like in all reality, and Arlene, this too, like when it comes to showing cattle, you can do the same things, right? Yeah, like sure. you can, whether it's a club sport or you're trailing around showing cattle all over the place, it, it almost becomes a similar type of Pick your sport, right? Your sport just might not be a traditional sport. Yeah, your activity. Yeah, whatever your activity is, it, it can be anything. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I see that, and I, I know, I think that that's something that we have to put on the table even this winter. Now that the show season is done, is to to discuss that and think about what the next season is going to look like. Because, like you said, family time is important too, and I know that in our family, not everybody shows. So it, sometimes it feels like the showing can prioritize over the other stuff. And yeah, those are 
those are things that you have to to figure out and reevaluate along the way. But I could totally see we're not a sportsy family, but I totally see that in other families who, yeah, it starts to take up all your nights and all your weekends. And then if you've got multiple kids and multiple sports, then you're going in different directions. And yeah, where's where's the where's the time for for the family too in that? So we've been talking for a while, and I have loved all of it. So I'm gonna just ask you briefly about your podcast because we're podcast people. So if people want to listen to Uplevel Dairy, Dairy, who are they going to be hearing? Yeah. So my podcast is the Uplevel Dairy podcast. And I actually just just launched a second podcast that comes out twice a month instead of every week called Uplevel Dairy Young Leaders. And, and it all comes back to the core focus of business management and leadership for skill set and mindset of dairy farm owners and managers and the people that sit closely with them in their decision making, like nutritionists, veterinarians, and and the advisors that that they trust in in their decisions. And so, um, so who do they hear? They hear from a lot of other dairy owners and managers that are just living living it and doing the things. And in some ways, it's a lot of the same type of people that I used to cover when I was an editor and a writer. It's just a different way to consume the information and the messages. And so, so I really look at. I'm I'm always looking at asking myself the question of like, who are who are some of the best people in the dairy business that have a lot to share and that others really look to. And I've been really blessed to have had a lot of incredible guests that have been able to have been able to share what's helped them solve a problem. I talk a lot about employee management because for one, I love people and I'm a people person. So I want to see people succeed. But for two, I know that it is one of the biggest struggles for a lot of dairy owners and managers is managing people. So we talk a lot about that. There's a lot of things that relate in some way back to leadership. And, and that's something else I believe in strongly is leading yourself first. And, and what do we need to do to develop ourselves so that we can have that influence on the people around us? And then some of the bigger picture conversations about things going on in the dairy industry. And that's what people find on Uplevel Dairy. Very cool. Well, I'm a listener. I haven't got through all your episodes yet. There's a lot of them. But yeah, as a dairy farmer, it's been helpful for me for sure. Good. Thank you. Katie, you want to do our county fair question? Sure. And first, Peggy, and maybe... Well, we can leave this in. Did you listen to our episode with Katie Dodderer yet? She's, as the advocate, she does Spanish classes for farmers to be able to more easily communicate with their employees. And I I thought it was so cool because it comes from a very focused place of like, what language do we need most right now to be able to communicate with our employees? And also the fact that Duolingo for Spanish. And if I sold t-shirts, that would be great. But if I need to talk to someone about milking cows, it has not Mm. taught me the vocab for milkers or tank cleaner or any of that. So um, she runs a really interesting program. And we do, it was one of our very first episodes too. She's a super, super fun person. Okay, I'll have to go back and dig that one out. Yeah, yeah, she's she does great. She does great things for the dairy industry. So we ask all of our guests, if you were going to dominate a category at the county fair, what would it be? And you can make up a category if you need to or want to. Yeah, I, I so I was I was reflecting on my county fair experiences as a kid. And so so my mom was one that encouraged us to do like everything where like you take like two carloads of projects to the county fair. And so what I learned in retro, yeah, Arlene too. Yeah. (laughs) So what I learned in, what I learned in retrospect, when I look back on this is that I really wasn't good at any of them. 
I think I got a lot of pity blue ribbons for like home furnishings and like cooking and baking and like woodworking and all of the things. Right. And so I was thinking about that. I'm like, what is there? I'm like here. And here's here's where I've landed. This is where you get to know the real Peggy. If 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 there if I knew that there was an arm wrestling contest coming up at the Brown County Fair, I would be training for it right now. Whoa, (laughs) I like it. That is not something I would have guessed. So I'll give you that. (laughs) <laughs> it's it's the inner farm girl farm girl bail tosser in me that would be like that like when I started thinking about that I'm like oh my gosh I'm like maybe I should start one and then I'm like what no no I don't need to start more things I don't need to start more things our fair has a cast iron skillet throwing competition so oh I would oh that'd be awesome so so yeah something yeah something weight bearing right <laughs> use use that strength so we are going to go ahead into our cussing and discussing segment. As listeners know, there's an online platform. You can go to our speak pipe or to our email and send us your cussing and discussing. Katie, what are you feeling like cussing and discussing this week? And for listeners, it is the week of Thanksgiving when we're recording. Won't be when it comes out. So if there are Thanksgiving related cussing and discussings, you'll know why. Katie, what are you cussing and discussing this week? The logistics of being an adult. Just just all of them. I was trying to narrow it down, but I can't. I just got a guinea pig cage yeah. that I, I measured. I knew how big it was, but it appears to be about three times the size that I envisioned, despite having measured it. Yesterday, I went to the grocery store to get our Thanksgiving provisions and got judged for buying five pounds of butter, which I thought was fairly restrained, but apparently not. And then when I got home, we had to take my husband's car into town to get new tires, which of course means that two people have to go to town and the kids have to go somewhere or else you have to convince the kids to get in the car. But first the cows need a bale and the kids need dinner. And now the kids have taken their shoes off. So you have to get their shoes back on. And adult life would not be that hard if you could just do the damn thing that you need to do. But all the doing and figuring on the other side of doing the thing that you need to do is just bonkers. Yeah, I'm doing a lot of nodding because tomorrow we have to bring our van in to put snow tires on it. And yeah, seems like an easy thing. But yeah, the logistics and the discussions and the the, the choreography that goes into like, okay, so I'll we'll put the snow tires in the back of this vehicle and I'll drive that one. And what time should we go? And well, we've got something on tomorrow morning, so we need to drop it off the night before and make sure it's there before they close the gate because we need to get it on that side of the gate and drop the keys in the drop box. And oh my gosh, yeah. Well, and that was just it. Like, oh, we can take the car in the morning, but the kids have to be to school and Jim has to be to work and I have to be to work. And That's right. And where are the car seats? And <laughs> yeah. And then do I need to go anywhere? Because now I don't have a car because he took my car, which is fine, but it's just... Yeah. You have to think every element through. And it's something that city folks just don't have the same relation to because you can call an Uber or you can get food delivered or what, like we live 20 miles from town. Like it, it's not a five minute trip to drop something off either. It's, it's a whole logistical thing. And then like, can I fit this massive amount of groceries? Are the car seats in the car? Is is there dog food in the car? Is there 10 bags of barn lime in the car? Like, (laughs) I'm over it. Too many details. I'm over it. Anyway, Peggy, what do you have to cuss and discuss this week? Yeah, adulting is definitely a theme that comes up on a regular basis. But I do not feel like I was adequately prepared. <laughs> no, no. Well, and like, and I think it goes back to like the the control thing, right? Like, 
we think we're we think we're in control and then uh, we have these reminders that we are so not and like that you always got to add like an hour onto every project and like your story reminded me of my trip to Aldi's that was supposed to be for five things with my boys last night right (laughs) like you can you can imagine how that went the five minute trip was it two hundred dollars or yeah pretty much pretty much yeah, anytime, yeah, anytime I go in with less than five items on in my list, it's never, never that number. Yeah, the five-minute trip for five things. It'll only be a second. It'll be a second. 45 minutes later, two gigantic boxes later, I'm like, and I still, I didn't even, this wasn't even the actual Thanksgiving shopping. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but some of it might be, so. But, like, piggybacking on, like, this whole time of the year thing, I was thinking about this, and I'm like, I just, I get a little frustrated by how fast everyone wants the one season to blend into the next one. And like, I know that people love like pumpkin spice in in August already, but I can't handle it until mid September to October. I know people love Christmas and decorating their Christmas trees, but I can't, I have to, like, I just have such a hard time saying that we're blowing off Thanksgiving and everything in between for for Christmas and like I just I have to like compartmentalize and segment seasons to enjoy them. I will say that the the Canadian Thanksgiving in October does give you a better spread. You're not going to change just based on mine, but ours is early October, so then you're like full in full fall mode and by the time you get to late November and you guys are having Thanksgiving, you can start to think about Christmas. But yeah, I feel like you guys have to wait, but then it seems like it's like the next day Thanksgiving is over and move on. Well, and like in the retail, right? Like even like school, back to school, our like our Walmart had school supplies out in the middle of July. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, don't. I'm like, just why? Why Why do you do this? Why do you do this? Like, I don't want to think about school. Like, can we just can we just give time and space to the seasons, the reasons for them and stop trying to like rush everything. And that's that's my that's my grand. There it is. (laughs) Gosh, darn it. There's my cuss. (laughs) Gosh, darn it. (laughs) <laughs> Arlene, maybe we should maybe we should take a, a page from the boy child's book and just start celebrating Thanksgiving twice. Cause I know the other day he Oh yeah, did he did he do Canadian version two? No, he d- he's he's a hobbit, apparently. And he asked me what was for second lunch yesterday. Oh nice. Or I guess it was Sunday. <laughs> Wanted to know what was for second lunch. Like So I don't feel like Hopefully we're not going to run out of things to be thankful for. So we could just do Thanksgiving twice. I feel like that might be a good way to do it. Like a trial run. Could have a Thanksgiving every month. There we go. We can be thankful for you, with you, from afar. You can just be thankful for Canadians in October. (laughs) Thanks, guys. So Arlene, what do you have to cuss and discuss today? I guess I'm going to, I'm going to piggyback on yours and go with car maintenance gymnastics because the... The logistics of the trying to get to the place to drop off the vehicle that you need and then the borrowing. And we're pretty lucky in that because we live on the family compound, I can often ask my mother-in-law to maybe drop me off or pick me up or do one of those do one of those runs when you have to get your vehicle somewhere and need to get back home to the farm again. But yeah, vehicle gymnastics is a real pain. And then it just makes me think of the families who who do only have one vehicle and how they make that work because that was a whole other level of things to figure out. And one of our drivers is away at university. So at least I'm not competing with with 
with her too. So once she's home for Christmas, it'll be a whole other uh, logistical. Where are you going and which vehicle and who needs it back at what time? So yeah, vehicle gymnastics. All right. So thank you so much for Peggy to Peggy for joining us today on the yeah. podcast. Just remind listeners where they can find you online, whether it's for something to help you. What are your three things again? Peace, rest, and relief for the CBD. Yes, if you're looking for peace, stress, and relief, or if you want to find out more about Uplevel Dairy, where should they look for you? Yeah, for the peace, rest, and relief, that's PRICBD.com is the website, pre-CBD. I don't think I can ship to Canada. I've been asked before, so sorry about that. But then for, for dairy business management and leadership, that would be Uplevel Dairy Podcast. So that's on Apple and Spotify and YouTube. And, and you can now find the Uplevel Dairy Young Leaders Podcast that just dropped here too. So that's where you can find me. And, and I just appreciate both of you for letting me jump in on the conversations with you and, and keep doing what you're doing to connect with those, the rest of us that are out there trying to do the mom things and do the kid things and do the farm things and, and trying to do it all, but trying to do it in a way that actually doesn't, in a way that actually serves us where we're at. That's the goal, right? Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Peggy. Thank you for joining us on Barnyard Language. If you enjoy the show, we encourage you to support us by becoming a patron. Go to www.patreon.com backslash barnyardlanguage to make a small monthly donation to help cover the costs of making this show. Please rate and review the podcast and follow the show so you never miss an episode. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as Barnyard Language, and on Twitter, we are Barnyard Pod. If you want to connect with other farming families, you can join our private Barnyard Language Facebook group. We are always in search of guests for the podcast. If you or someone you know would like to chat with us, please get in touch.